Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Tonight we continue our study of Paul's extended discussion about marriage and singleness found in chapter 7 of this letter written to the church of God in the Greek city of Corinth. And so far we've seen Paul make the point that singleness is not necessarily a problem that needs fixing, nor is it inherently superior in its spiritual status as compared to a married person. Likewise, marriage is not something that has to be escaped when we come to Christ, even if we're married to an unbeliever. God can and does work holiness into the life of a believer and even a measure of holiness into the life of an unbelieving spouse through the believing spouse's perseverance in that marriage. And his main point is this, is that neither marriage nor singleness is a status that needs escaping, nor is it a status that needs pursuing in order for someone to be faithful to God. And that frees each of us, every one of us who comes to faith to serve God faithfully where we are. We can bloom wherever we're planted because we know it is God who has planted us, who has, as the text will tell us, assigned to us or distributed to us according to his sovereign and goodwill. And we can be content in our station in life, knowing that it has come from God and therefore not an impediment to our spiritual flourishing in this life, but instead God's chosen means to make us more like his son. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17. Hear the word of our Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who, has, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers... In whatever condition each was called, let there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we need you to speak. We need you to reveal to us your truth, to open our eyes, to see the glory and the beauty found in your plan and your design and your work and yourself. Father, show us more of yourself. Show us more of Christ tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's begin by looking at verse 17 and see the principle stated. The principle stated. Paul begins his passage by stating a principle that seems simple at first glance, but the principle was the one over which the Corinthians were tripping. He says, let a person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. The life 
to which God has called him. Lead the life that God has given to you. And so let's look at this principle in the context of Corinth and see what Paul was driving at when he wrote this principle. As we've seen in previous sermons, some of the Corinthian believers were apparently mistaken about what needs to happen when someone comes to faith. Some were saying that to be truly holy, you have to be free to serve the Lord, and therefore you should be single. You should free yourself of your spouse so that you can devote yourself totally to the service of the Lord. Sounds downright holy, doesn't it? Others were teaching that to be a faithful Christian, you must be married. Singleness was viewed as an inferior status, and thus faithfulness demanded that you be married right away. So Paul, as he often does, corrects their thinking by reframing it in a theological perspective. He instead says that each person should lead the life that God has assigned to you, or that the Lord has distributed to you. The idea is that God has specifically passed this life to you. He's given it to you. It's your lot from God. And this is hugely important. So important that he, prints, he restates the principle three times in this passage. Lead the life that God has assigned to you. And the statement is significant, and it has significant implications. His, his principle affirms the absolute sovereignty of God over every aspect of our lives. He affirms the providential care and the concern that God has over each and every one of your children. Were you married at the time you came to know the Lord? Then stay married. Were you single? Then you can stay single. God's salvific call, His drawing you to faith, is in no way impeded by His providential call on your life, which means your circumstances. Or to say it more plainly, no marital status is inherently more holy than the other, and no circumstantial status is able to impede God's calling on a life of a believer. What he's driving at is the principle of contentment, godly contentment. This is not a concept foreign to Paul's thought. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says godliness with contentment is great gain, great gain. And that's the wonderful blessing that comes with salvation in Jesus Christ. We, when we know that we have everything we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ, and we know that every circumstance, every trial, every relationship, every job, every aspect of our life is coming to us from the hand of our good and sovereign Lord, then we can trust that He knows what He's doing and that He's doing it for our good. Now, most of us can affirm everything I just said. In the abstract, those are easy things to affirm. We can even affirm them in the lives of others as they go through trials. You know God is good. He's using this for your good. But how often are we tempted to forget those truths when we are going through something unpleasant or something hard? When the pressure is on, when you are stressed, when you're tired, or when you're lonely, or when you're neglected, how often do you rest contentedly in the Lord's plan for your life in that moment? I know that I am not quick to be contented in those moments. How often are we tempted to think that if the external circumstances could just change, then I would be thriving. Then I could really be growing in the Lord. I could really be useful in the things of God if those things out there would just change. 
If it weren't for this job, then I could be really happy. If it weren't for my spouse, or if it weren't for my kids, then I could really be doing what the Lord calls me to do. If it weren't for this illness, or this problem, or this person, then I could finally be free. And everything that Satan tells us from the world compounds all of these issues. Every commercial on TV, every self-help book, every Oprah interview, every political speech ever made promises us peace and rest and happiness and contentment as soon as something changes. That's a lie. It's a lie. It's the same lie from the garden. Satan promised to Adam divine-like status if he would just add one more piece of fruit to his circumstances. He provoked Adam to be discontent with the current situation, discontent with what the Lord had given to him, discontent with what God had provided for him in an entire world of peace and rest. And so Adam took. He grabbed it. And he ate. And so has every person since Adam. We take and we eat and we think that fruit will make us happy. All of Adam's children are prone to be discontent. From the moment of our birth, we're discontent. We, as little children, you see them. They're not happy with the toy over here. They want the toy that that kid has over there, and so they go and they get it, and they rip it out of their hands. We're discontent with the decisions our parents made, with the clothes that we've been given, with the school we have to attend, with the body that God has given to us, discontent with the job that he's placed us in, with the spouse that we've been given. And what this discontentment actually reveals is less about the circumstances and more about our own hearts within the trial. God, in His kindness, brings us through trials, brings us through moments of temptation to reveal the discontentment and the remaining unbelief that lingers in our hearts. He doesn't assign us tough times in order to hurt us. He assigns us them in order to heal us. He leads us through valleys to reveal to us the subtle unbelief that remains in our hearts. He uses the trials to show us the idols that remain. The little fears that hide within us. That, that, and, and ultimately, He leads us through these tough times. Not for the, time, not for the sake of the times but to bring us back to Him as the only source of true and lasting contentment. Do you find in yourself a measure of discontentment? Are you quick to thank the Lord for the trials, knowing that even tough times are from His good hand and are meant to draw you back to contentment in Him alone? Or are you quick to grumble? To complain about that thing over there, that circumstance, that person, the, the problem, that if it would just go away, then my life would be fine. If we're truthful, we're all marked by some measure of discontentment. Some are easy to see, like that person in the fast lane that's going 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. You grumble about that, get out of the way. That's discontentment. Or maybe we're, we're fuming about the disrespect, the joke that somebody played on us, or the, the, the hard word that they gave to us at work. Maybe we're bitter about the situation that's constantly in our thoughts. 
We're all like Adam. We're deceived into thinking that we deserve a little taste of something, something out there that God is unjustly keeping from me. And so we take it. Say, that's mine. And so we too, like Adam, deserve a condemnation of death. That's what Scripture says. We're a discontented people. But the Bible doesn't just leave us there in our condemnation. Adam was not immediately killed for his discontentment. He was instead promised a Savior to come. And this Savior that would come, he he wouldn't grasp after forbidden fruit. Instead, he was given the bitterness of sour wine to quench his thirst. He He didn't reach after a crown of earthly glory. He wore a crown of thorns. He didn't have robes of fine linen. He wore on his back the whips and the lashings earned by his discontented bride. He didn't count equality with God. The thing that Adam wanted, Scripture says, Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped at. It's Philippians 2. He didn't act like Adam. Instead, he gave up his status. He lowered himself. He trusted the Lord. He trusted the path, the status, the circumstance assigned to him. Given to him by the Father. He became nothing. He bore the shame and the guilt of a covetous people. He died the death that they deserved and that they had earned. And he did that so that his discontented bride might be set free from her discontentment and condemnation of death. Jesus was content with his death so that we might be content in his life. And it's only in him that we can be content in this life. It's only by faith in him that we can be freed from the guilt of sin and the punishment of death. It's only by coming to Jesus and enjoying his salvation that we can be truly freed to be content in whatever situation God assigns to us. And so I encourage you, come to Jesus afresh. Come tonight. Confess your discontentment to Him. Remember again how He died for you, how He loves you, how He longs for you to have so much more than that little thing out there that you think needs to change. And remember that He's not assigned to you a bitter lot that He Himself hasn't already tasted. Remember how he's using the disappointments, the trials, the tough times in this life to prepare for you an eternal weight of glory beyond anything you can imagine. Paul says, this is my rule for all of the churches. It's not just for Corinth. It's for each of us. Let each of us live the life that God has assigned to us, knowing that God has called us. He's called us not merely to endure it, but to thrive contented in our assignment, strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit Himself. And He uses that trial to draw us closer to the Lord through it, rather than using the trial as an excuse for our own discontentment. Live the life to which you have been called. Second, we've seen the principle stated. Now let's move on to verses 18 to 21 and see the principle illustrated. The principle illustrated. 
Paul moves on in the text to illustrate his principle in two specific realms, the religious realm and the ethnic realm, and the social realm. So let's look at Paul's application of the principle to the religious and ethnic realm. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision nor anything, uh, counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So Paul here is moving into something that doesn't immediately seem to be a huge issue at Corinth in the moment. He kind of just kind of tosses it in there and moves on. Unlike other passages where it's a clearly big deal. It becomes, circumcision that is, becomes kind of a thorn in Paul's side in various regions of his ministry. The whole book of Galatians, for example. You see Paul dealing with contingents of religious zealots called Judaizers who were requiring circumcision as a mark of Christian faithfulness. They would say, without circumcision, you are outside of the salvation of God. Faith alone was not enough. You had to add to faith works of the flesh, specifically circumcision. And this issue, circumcised or uncircumcised, was a huge cultural issue, especially in the couple hundred years leading up to Christ's coming. But Paul's point here is to take these issues and to show how the gospel reframes them. One commentator summarizes it this way, that the gospel absolutely transcends and thereby eliminates altogether all merely social distinctions. In Christ, Jew and Greek together, whether slave or free, make up one body. And since this is so, by analogy, it frees one from the urgency to change one's situation, like the Corinthians were trying to do. And so Paul's point is this, the gospel is not bound by social or ethnic tradition, nor is it bound by rigorous obedience to old covenant ceremonial law. Were you circumcised when you came to faith? That is, were you a Jew? Then stay. Stay that way. Don't seek the strange and painful removal of your circumcision. Were you uncircumcised at the time of your coming to Christ? That's fine. Stay that way. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. What matters, Paul says, is obedience to the commandments of God. And that statement would have been inflammatory. Because the Judaizers would say that circumcision is the highest of the commandments of God. But Paul's statement here, as he does elsewhere, reminds us that what God cares about is obedience from a faith-filled heart to the moral law of God, rather than mere external obedience to the law that thinks it can earn righteousness. And if the goal is heart-level obedience for any who come to faith, it is of no concern whether one is circumcised or not. Change the outside doesn't matter, and neither can it change the heart. Stay where you are. Remain as you've been called. Don't seek to change that which has no bearing on your spiritual obedience. Circumcision makes you no more or less faithful than uncircumcision. That's what Paul's arguing for the Corinthians. But I haven't heard many debates about whether we should be circumcised or not in the hallways at Morningview. Is that, is that a debate that's lively here today? Well, not necessarily, but does that debate have any application for us today? 
we could perhaps apply it in an analogous way to our setting in the post-civil rights era. You hear calls from the world today that say, if you would be righteous, then you need to rid yourself of your racial and ethnic ties and instead embrace the ethnicity, the ethnic superiority of another race. You ever heard that? If you're white, you need to divest yourself of your whiteness. You need to embrace blackness. You need to embrace Hispanic heritage and culture if you're truly going to repent of your implicit ethnic racial guilt. That's lively today. This kind of divisive poison finds its way into churches. But to such an error, I think Paul would simply respond that whiteness or blackness or Hispanicness is nothing. If you're white when you came to faith, stay white. If you were black, don't seek to become white. If you're Hispanic or Chinese or Korean or Nigerian, then remain so. What matters is not what's on the outside. What matters is obedience to the commandments of God. Ceremonial and ethnic markers stand as no barrier to the faithfulness of God's people in the household of God. Paul doesn't limit his comments to the religious and ethnic realm. He also applies this principle to the social realm. Verse 21, were you a bondservant, that is a slave, when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. How the ESV translate it. You say, forget about it. It's no big deal. That's shocking language, Paul. This is where people's ears perk up. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. It's not a big deal. Now to get what Paul is saying, and what he's not saying here, let me give us a little word about slavery in the Greco-Roman era. Slavery in the ancient world was not like slavery here in the southern U.S. Slaves comprised something like 35 to 50% of the population in Corinth. That's half. Slaves could be poorly treated manual laborers. They could also be doctors, accountants, managers of estates, teachers, tutors, many other noble professions. And Paul's point here is, not, is, is, is that not even slavery is an impediment to faithful service to God. Your status as a slave or your status as a freedman, which is a technical term for someone who has earned their manumission, their freedom, your status as a slave or a freedman is not an impediment either way to your faithfulness to God. Now, Paul is not calling for social revolution, as if somebody comes to faith and then they immediately have to lead a rebellion against their masters. No. The faith of the Bible is a faith that works in any situation, in any status, in any country, in any occupation, in any time. Stay where you are. Be content in it. And be obedient to the will of God. However, Paul here does not say that all slaves must stay enslaved forever. Like he did in his discussion of marriage in the preceding passage, he offers an exception to the rule. He says that if you can gain your freedom, then do it. See, slaves were often able to work extra jobs on the side. They could pocket a little extra money, and after they gave a, a cut of it to their master, 
they could take their money they've earned on the side and go to the pagan temple, which would act like a bank for them, and they would deposit their money. And after they had earned enough money to purchase their own freedom, according to the fair trade value of the day, whatever their position was worth, they would take their master, they would go to the temple, they would pay the remaining money to the priest, the priest would then ceremonially take the money from the slave, give it to the master, and the slave would then be free from the service of the master, but not free to himself. He would be transferred into the service of the gods. This was the process that everyone would be familiar with in Corinth, in Paul's audience. And it's what's in the background that informs what Paul says next. Let's look at verses 22 to 24 and see our final point. The principle unfolded. We'll see the principle unfolded. Verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. And so Paul introduces us here to a wonderful paradox of the Christian life. We are all totally free. And we're all totally slaves. And why is it that a slave can be content in his slavery? That's because the salvation of the Lord is a freedom from everything of eternal significance. And why is it that a freed man can be content in his freedom? Because he knows that he himself is a slave to a heavenly master. Slave to Christ. And we know that we are all free in Christ because the only ultimate slavery that matters, slavery to sin and death, has been broken by Jesus. Let's use some other Pauline logic. Think back to your life prior to when you came to faith in Jesus. Some of you that was in the near history. Some of you that was many moons ago. But think back. You thought you were free. You thought you could do whatever you wanted, that you had no master, but you were actually slaves, Paul says. You were slaves to sin. That's what he says in Romans 6.20. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what, did, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, Paul says. Paul's saying you thought you were free, but you were slaves to your own lust. You were slaves to materialism, slaves of fear, slave. You were crippled by the desire to have others think well of you. You were slaves of workaholism, slaves to addiction, slaves to everything, and all of it led to death. But God, but God has acted. And what is the fruit of God's action in Jesus Christ? Romans 6.22 but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefits you reap aren't death, but they lead to holiness and the result is eternal life. You are free. You have been liberated. You've been emancipated from slavery to the cruel taskmaster that is the law of sin and death. And in being liberated, you've not been set loose to do whatever you want. You've not been untethered from all authority and allegiance. Rather, you're like the slave in the temple in Corinth. You see, your price of freedom, your, your, your debt of manumission has been paid. You're no longer bound to your old master. 
but instead you're bound to a new master. But that new master isn't the pagan gods. And your priest is no mere pagan cleric. Your old master was the law of sin and death, and your new master is the God, singular, of the universe. But the differences don't just stop there. Your liberation wasn't earned because you worked some extra side jobs. You didn't build up enough good credit, enough good works to outweigh your bad works. You've been granted emancipation because, not because you were so diligent or faithful or righteous. In fact, there is no way you could ever earn enough righteousness to cover the debt of lawlessness that you had accrued. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says, Ephesians 2. You were stuck in your slavery with no hope of release from bondage but God. But God has sent another to purchase your liberation. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 23. You were bought with a price. And what is that price, Paul? The price was the life of the Son of God. He puts it in Colossians 2 this way. He said, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Him, having forgiven us of our trespasses. How is that, Paul? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your slavery has been broken. Your shackles have been destroyed. Your old master has been defeated. And that means in Christ, we're no longer destined for continual enslavement to sin. You've been set free. Our sinning is not an inevitability. Rather, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us pursue actual righteousness in this life. We've been freed from the cruel master that we had, and instead, our allegiance has been transferred to the Lord of all. So what does that mean for us? Paul concludes verse 23. He says, Therefore, do not become bondservants of men. I think this is a reference to the Corinthian fondness for eloquent words of wisdom, man-made philosophy which disguises itself as spiritual maturity and thereby dictating that they had to change their marital status or their social status or some other circumstance if they were to be really holy. Ignore all that, Paul would say. You can be holy and thrive where you are in the situation in which you find yourself because the God of all the universe is not limited by any human status or any social convention and no man can prevent you from being obedient to the commandments of God, not even an earthly master. And so to summarize this section, to connect it with what came before and what's going to come next week, we could say that Paul concludes his argument with those who would dissolve their marriages in favor of the higher spiritual status of celibacy, that that analogy is gone. The point is neither that one is married nor one is celibate. They should serve God where they are. But Paul's not done with the celibates, with the singles. He'll come back to the principle because he agrees with them in part that he thinks singleness is best if you can do it. But he disagrees with how they get there, and that's significant. And we'll turn to that next time. But for now, let's conclude with the final verse of this section. 
as a summary of it all. So, brothers, in whatever condition each of us was called, there let him remain with God. Amen. We have the blessing tonight of finishing this evening with a visible picture, with a tangible and tasteable reminder of why we can be content where we have been called. God has provided for us in Christ all that we need for eternal life and godliness, and that provision is pictured for us in the bread and in the cup at the table of the Lord. God has spared nothing needful for procuring your salvation. Nothing lacks. Christ has paid it all. He has borne the wrath of sin in our place. He has earned the price of our eternal life through the perfect life of Jesus Christ and through His atoning death. This table is for the encouragement of the saints and the building up of the church. And so if you're marked by the fruit of discipleship seen in Acts chapter 2, that's the devotion of devotion to the apostles' teaching found in God's Word, devotion to the fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread with God's people, and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. However, if you have not yet come to Christ by faith and obeyed Him in baptism, then let the plates pass. First be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and then join the church of God and participate with us at the table. I will pray and then ask the Lord, ask our table servants to come. Father in heaven, we ask that you would take these simple elements, that you would set them apart and use them in a holy and mighty way, that you would build up your people, that you would do this to make your name great. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.